MSW Media. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Would you eat that? Why? Yeah, it tastes good, but it's not good for you. I'm aware of it. Well, why would you do something that you know that's not good for you? Because I don't think about it. Well, that's living in denial. Living in denial? Yeah. I'm aware of that. So you're aware of all your behavior, yet you continue to do things that aren't good for you. That sounds sort of foolish, don't you think so, Jack? No. Stealing $15 million from Jimmy Serrano sounds foolish. I think I get caught. Oh, yeah. That's from Midnight Run. The great film Midnight Run, which came out 32 years ago this week. Which, 32 years, what is that? It's not the silver, it's not the gold anniversary. What is that? The Burnt Sienna anniversary? The Burnt Sienna anniversary of the release of Midnight Run. And in honor of that, we're going to have the man who wrote that movie. Legendary screenwriter-director George Gallo is going to be joining us on the show in just a few minutes. Um, what we're drinking on this episode is Michter's, which is truly one of my all-time favorite distilleries. Michter's has two whiskeys that are both hot off the press, brand new, just out, the 2020 releases of their 10-year-old bourbon and their 10-year-old rye. I've tried them and both are exceptional. Loving the rye in particular. It's, it's spicy like you expect rye to be, but there's there's just enough corn and malted barley in the mash bill to lend a little uh, sweetness to it. There's some rich vanilla flavor and toffee and some toasted nuts. And, you know, I love me some toasted nuts, don't you? I love me some toasted nuts. Stay thirsty, my friends. I am thirsty. That's why I'm drinking the whiskey. And then, you know, there's a smidgen of orange zest there as well in the whiskey. Just a little smidge, a smidgen. That said, I currently happen to be fortunate enough to be sipping on the last little bit that I have left of the 2019 edition of Michter's 20-Year Kentucky Straight Bourbon. Oh, oh. When it comes to barrel aging, Michter's master distiller Dan McKee and the master of maturation Andrea Wilson Consider 17 to 20 years to be the fork in the road point when certain barrels can achieve an extraordinary level of quality. The barrels that McKee and Wilson selected for the 2019 edition of Michter's 20-year Kentucky Straight Bourbon were really something special. I mean, this whiskey is masterful. It's a complex spirit possessed of an array of cascading flavors. There's black cherry and honeysuckle and pecans. At 114.2 proof, it is not... For those with tender taste, this bourbon's got brawn, but it's no brute. Its potency grabs your attention, but its composure is what leaves a lasting impression. Now, here's the here's the sad part. It's $700 a bottle for the 2019 
Michter's 20 year, and I don't even know if he can get it anymore. But you can get the new ones. You can get the 10 year bourbon, that's $130 a bottle, and the 10 year rye is $160. But I know that's steep. I understand that, especially time like right now when things are tough but it is world-class whiskey and you got to pay the price for that stuff okay i'm, I'm interested in uh, hearing what george gallo has to say about the mictors because we're going to be drinking it together over zoom and again that's coming up in just a little bit speaking of george 32 years ago this week i mentioned the film midnight run was released and it's now considered a classic George wrote it, and it was directed by Martin Brest, who's done a ton of movies, you know, including Beverly Hills Cop, another classic from that era. In an essay that ran this week on Esquire's site, uh, author Chris Nashawati called Midnight Run, quote, the greatest buddy action comedy in an era of great buddy action comedies. And he wasn't kidding. In the 80s, you had 48 Hours, Tango and Cash, Running Scared, the Lethal Weapon franchise. Ah, oh, what a time to be alive as opposed to now. So if you haven't seen Midnight Run, shame on you, first of all. But in a nutshell, Robert De Niro plays a bounty hunter named Jack Walsh. He's hired by a bail bondsman played by the guy who got his head chopped off and put in a bowling bag on The Sopranos. And he's got to bring back a fugitive accountant called The Duke, played by the great Charles Grodin. And there's all sorts of other characters after them, from the FBI to the mob to another bounty hunter. This is supposed to be an easy job for De Niro's character. They call it a midnight run, but it turns out to be anything but. So as Nashawati writes in Esquire, quote, in a making of feature in a making of featurette that accompanied the, the release of the film, Groden describes the film thusly. The story basically is a guy chases another guy and a third guy chases the two guys. And then a whole lot of other people chase all of the guys. That's what Charles Groden said. And Nashwadi says he's not wrong, but of course he's being modest, a bit glib, because Midnight Run is a classic that more than anything is really an old-fashioned love story in action comedy drag. It's a stealth romantic comedy between two guys who start off hating each other's guts, but over time, through hardship and misadventure and chorizo and lionese potatoes, develop a reluctant mutual respect, and even something like liking each other. But do yourself a favor and check it out tonight. You can thank me later. Years ago, I used to have a radio show on Sirius XM called Dan Dunn's Happy Hour. And that's when I first met George Gallo, friend of the show, Tom Caltabiano, brought George onto the show. And it was fantastic. We did it at a place in Hollywood called The Spare Room. I love talking to the guy. And that's been it's been years. It's been almost a decade since I last spoke to him. So I'm, I'm very excited to talk to him about Midnight Run and all the other great projects he's been involved with. Bad Boys, anyone? Remember Bad Boys? Yeah, that was George. George wrote that. But first, we're going to go to a quick word from one of our esteemed, beloved sponsors. Hey, all. Being on lockdown these past few months has been tough on all of us. Something I've found to be extremely helpful in maintaining my sanity during this challenging time is sticking to daily routines. Maintaining a sense of structure can help prevent you from feeling overwhelmed, and I highly recommend you keep doing the little things you used to do on the regular in the pre-COVID era, like shaving, for instance. Unfortunately, Harry's is here to help you look your best while saving you a little cash along the way. Yes, Harry's has your grooming needs covered, with high-quality blades as low as $2 each, delivered straight to your doorstep. Cut out the middleman, manufacturing blades in a German factory that's been honing the craft for a century, which means you get incredibly high-quality blades 
at factory direct prices. And during this trying time, you'll feel a little better about your purchase. Not only is Harry's donating 1% of proceeds to nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans, they're also giving $1 million worth of shaving supplies to hospitals across the U.S. That's what I call good karma for you and Harry's. What we're drinking listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash drinking. That's harrys.com slash drinking. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash drinking to start shaving better today. Hey, it's Aisha Tyler. And before he was known as Podcast Dan, he was known to me and so many others as Puka Dan. And Puka Dan, forever shall he be. Joining me now is a legendary director, producer, painter, musician. He wrote the films Midnight Run, Bad Boys, The Whole Ten Yards, and a whole lot more. He also wrote and directed Middleman, 29th Street, My Mom's New Boyfriend, Trapped in Paradise. Got a movie coming out in the fall called The Comeback Trail that stars Robert De Niro, Tommy Lee Jones, Morgan Freeman, and I think every other A-lister in Hollywood is in this movie. I'm so pleased. It's been many years since we've had a chance to talk, and I'm glad to have him on the show. George Gallo, how are you, George? I'm doing great. Good to see you. It's good to see you, man. I... Uh, watched, rewatched Midnight Run last night, probably for about the 10th time, set, watched it last night. And I got to tell you, man, that is a, as a writer myself, it's a clinic on screenwriting. Everything is so, there's nothing in that movie that doesn't belong there. That's the way I feel. And everything is so, con- the language is so concise and it's, it's just, a model, I've always pointed at, there's a, a handful of movies that I think really illustrate what the craft is about, and that's, and that's definitely one of them. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, 32 years ago this week. Yeah, did it you read the Esquire, uh, was the Esquire article? Uh, I did. I referenced it a little bit earlier in the show, and I, yeah. I wanted to kind of ask it was, it was, did you see the piece in Esquire? I did yesterday. A bunch of friends uh, sent it to me. Yeah, it was, it, I'm always astonished, you know, because I know people like that movie, you know, uh, and I get a lot of, you know, people, oh, you wrote Midnight Run, blah, 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 you know, but uh, I'm still astonished that it's 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 still holding, you know, with, with folks. I, I really am. It, it's, it's, well, I mean, first of all, you've got, and beyond the writing, it's got an incredible cast, and Martin Brest was the director who was probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest director, right, at that time, right, doing yeah, That's it. correct. Yeah, yeah. He And he really did a beautiful job with it, you know. I mean, it, it's so good. And I, what were your memories of that time? How how involved were you in the actual production of the movie back then? I, I was there every day. I was on the set every day. You know, Marty, uh, Marty and I got very, very close during the, you know, the, it was originally, it was an original script, but then we reworked it together. And then when it went, uh, became time to shoot the movie, he wanted me on the set. So well, we started actually shooting in New York. And then we went west. We went New York to Chicago. Then we went down to what was supposed to be Amarillo. We shot in Globe, Arizona. And uh, then we went to Flagstaff. I mean, this is like a 90-day shoot. That's unheard of today, you know, for a, 
you know, an action. When you say unheard of, do you mean to you mean short or long? No, I mean long. I mean, studios today would never make Midnight Run. They would never make a cross-country action movie with R-rated language and, uh, you know, you know, because everyone's so global in their thinking, like, they will it play here? Will it play there? You know, I mean, you don't see movies like that getting made anymore. I mean, I, you know, I've written some scripts, like, of that ilk, and, you know, uh, there's very little interest in it right now. It's sad. Well, it's funny you say that. So I'm, I'm looking at the piece in Esquire that we talked about, Chris Nashawadi wrote it, and he, he says this in the piece, and quote, I'm quoting from it, the path from script to screen on Midnight Run wasn't a smooth one. Far from it. Brest, who had just made a mint for Paramount with 1984's Beverly Hills Cop, was slated to make his follow-up for the studio. But Gallo's script was full of so many spendy action set pieces that Paramount balked at their $35 million budget. Right. Uh, which so is that that's a big budget. Hold on, this deserves a drink. Hold on. Yeah, um, let's 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 uh, let's do it. Yes, yeah, that's I can tell you all the midnight run stories you wanted. I mean, I was there for all of it. I mean, yeah, I mean look, the part of it, I tell you what's interesting. I had not directed a movie yet. I was a very young guy when I wrote that movie. I think I was thirty when I wrote it. Okay. You know, I was thirty-two when it came out. And, you know, I mean I, I could see things in my head very clearly as a writer, but I had never directed anything. So when I wrote helicopter chases and I wrote cars going off of cliffs and then people running to the edge of a cliff and then jumping into the rapids and then going down the rapids. And, you know, I would write these things like, oh, this is great, you know, typing away on my IBM Selectric, you know, but I'd never shot these things, you know. So today, it's strange. Now I've directed now like what a dozen movies, you know, as a, as a, as a director writing it, I'd say, I'm not going to write this shit. I mean, who the, if I had to do it myself, I'd be like, who the fuck it, you know, there's like 90 days of. So you're of, thinking as if you're thinking as the writer director, this is going to cost this much. It's going to be a pain in the ass to do it. It's going to take too long. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'll tell you, when I, I did another movie, Trapped in Paradise, a comedy with Nick Cage, John Lovitz, Danica Harvey, and that entire movie took place in one night during a blizzard. You know, and I wrote that in California where it's nice and warm. And then I got the chance to direct the movie. And you very quickly, you're out there, it was literally 45 below zero when we were shooting them. And that's not an exaggeration. The cameras kept freezing up. It was back in the days of film, you know. Where did, where did you shoot it? We shot it in, in Toronto, outside of Toronto, in a town called Niagara-on-the-Lake. And then we shot in Guelph, another uh, area in Canada. You know, and then I, when I was out there, I was like, you know, when I wrote this shit, I didn't actually think about being out in the snow for 10 straight nights, yeah, 10 straight weeks of nights. You know, so, you know, now it does cross my mind when I'm writing something. And if I have a chance to direct it, I'm like, do I really want to hang off the side of a cliff for two weeks. <laughs> exactly. Hey, by uh, the way, this is a drinking show. I should point out Niagara on the Lake, George. Yeah. Hold on, I'm the, not drinking. Tom, where's that damn drink? He, he's getting it. So Niagara on the Lake is one of the best places for dessert wine in all the world. Yes. I'd say the Mosul. Yes. The, the, yeah. wine. yes. We yeah, drank the, tons of it in Canada. It's, it's incredible. I would say it's right up there with the Mosul in Germany, which is probably the most famous place for dessert wine. And then I would say Niagara on the Lake would be there and then probably Michigan up the upper now, peninsula. Now, wasn't Michigan. it like an accident or so, how they discovered it was an accident? Like the grapes it froze, froze the grapes freeze. Yeah. And right. so, and then you got to squeeze them right away and, and it just brings out so much of the sugar comes out of it. 
because they're frozen, it extracts so much more sugar content that you get these beautiful, rich, sweet wines. And where is your whiskey, George? Because this is what we're drinking. And I, I had a bunch of Michters. There it is. Yes, a bunch of Michters sent to, to George. I made it. I got an old fashioned. You're doing it neat, right? What do you, what do you have there? That's the Michters. Uh, this, the, is, this is the Michters small batch. Okay. Uh, bourbon. Kentucky oh, straight bourbon. Oh. I love I have to tell you, this is no bullshit. This may be the best bourbon I've ever had. No kidding. Yeah, this I, is. I'm right there with you, my friend. I love this whiskey. This is really tasty. Let's let's get a cheers here. Here's to Michters. Here's to Michters. Michters. Hmm. Are you a uh, what do you, what do you look for in a in a whiskey? Like, what do you have a flavor that you prefer? I mean, obviously, well, let's talk about this one. What are you, what are you getting out of this? Since you said it might be the best one you've ever had. It doesn't. It doesn't taste very syrupy. You know, it has just a nice clean taste. Uh, it's really good. It's. It's. It, it doesn't have that heavy thing that bourbon can sometimes have. It has a heaviness to it. This is like a. It's not light in a negative way. It's light in a positive way. It's always hard to find words for these things. It's just a nice. It's almost got like a little spicy vibe to it. You know, it absolutely it's, does. And, and yeah. The thing, you know, and you hear these terms bandied about a lot when you when you do these tasting, but in this case, it certainly applies. There's a lot of, it's very well balanced whiskey. You're mm-hmm. not getting you're not getting a lot of alcohol burn on it, although it probably has a fairly like. So the one I'm having right here, I've got the barrel strength uh, Kentucky straight rye whiskey that I made an old fashioned with. Now this is a hundred and nine point eight proof, almost a hundred and ten proof. This has a lot of oomph to it, but I'll tell you what, in the in this old fashioned, it's not being dominated by by the alcohol, by the burn. It's just the flavors are really coming through. And no, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I don't mean to cut you off. Sorry, go, go, go. No, 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 that, no, no. That's go ahead, please. No, it's just like it's balanced. You know, it's 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 all the things you like about it, but not one is overtaking the other. It's it's really good. It's. I, the, I have to tell you, I'm not like you know. I never like was a big lover of alcohol until like. But bourbon is something I actually like the taste of, you know? And well, as a, as a screenwriter and somebody who appreciates, obviously, I, I can tell you just from your work, you've got an affinity from the old film noir. There's, a, there's something cool about whiskey. Yeah. You, know, you, you think about the thin man. You, you just think about those old movies. Even the old, I, I always remember as a, from a very young age when I'd watch the, the, the westerns and the guy'd say, whiskey, leave the bottle. You know, and I just thought, man. I yeah, I know what you mean. Absolutely, the, 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 it goes. There's a certain romance to it. Uh, it, it, it uh, I mean, not to advocate cigarette smoking, but you know, I used to watch those Bogart with the cigarette and the booze. There was something very sure. cool about it. You know. Um, well, you, you in by the way, in Midnight Run, I was, I was actually marveling at that. So as I said, I rewatched it last night, and I found myself looking at it, at you know today through the lens of today, right? Which is what a lot of people do. And there is so much smoking in that movie, right? There's so much, everybody in that movie is smoking. There's a bunch of jokes about smoking. The guy's stealing this guy's cigarettes, this. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that, George, because you get that so much now where the, you know, they're looking at it through today's lenses, but the social mores have changed. And what was widely, except back in in the 1980s, everybody was smoking, right? But now it's frowned upon, but even worse, it's like grounds for getting you canceled, you know? And how do you feel about that? Do you, do you think it's fair to go back and say, 
you know, you couldn't make that movie. You couldn't have a movie now where everybody's smoking. They go, what the hell's well, going on? You know, here? It's funny. Like when I was writing it, you know, a lot of it was done on research. So, you know, I talked to cops. I talked to bounty hunters. You know, I talked to some FBI agents, you know, and I did a lot of real research. And every one of those fucking people smoked. The first thing I noticed is like, you know, you'd ask a question, out would come a cigarette. They would tap it. They'd light it and talk to you. So, and I was smoking quite a bit back then myself, you know, so it just seemed, there was something about that world where they were like sucking on cigarettes and uh, there's like an angst to all of the behavior. The only one in the movie I think that didn't smoke was Charles Grodin. I mean, everybody else had a cigarette in their mouth. He was more the healthy guy, you know? He was, he was and you know what I also struck me that I didn't remember from having what previous times I've watched it was Grodin's performance is so understated. Yes. He's just, but it's, but everything he says really carried a lot. And, and I felt like, and I don't know, I'd love to hear this from you, but it kind of seemed to me like he really energized De Niro. Yeah. Well, look, it's a great comedy thing. When one person gets bigger and bigger, the other person goes further and further back, you know, which is what Grodin did. You know, he would like a De Niro would have like a fucking meltdown and he would go, well, Jack, I don't know. He would actually like get more relaxed and more like placid, you know? So, I mean, and some of it was intended that way, but you know, those guys are so, I mean, De Niro and Grodin, I mean, they're, they're such amazing actors, you know? I mean, everybody in that movie was like a, a terrific, I just delivered, you know, they, you know, as a, as a screenwriter, you, you can only do so much, you know, you can, you know, you can write, quote, the perfect script, but it still has to get made. It still needs to get delivered. It still needs to be interpreted. It has to, you know, all these different voices of the actors, they have to make these characters come alive. They have to make them living, breathing people. And the director has to facilitate all of that. And, and uh, so somebody just walked in. Who is that? Is that my wife? Yes. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Well, you, mentioned, you mentioned you were a young writer then. You, you also you asked another question that was very interesting that we didn't we didn't deal with. Which what was the you said? Uh, damn it! It was a good question. It's a tough. It's tough to ask me that on a drinking show because I sorry. Uh, yeah, goddamn it! What happened two minutes okay. ago? Yeah. Okay. Well, but, uh, well, you were a young writer then. Did you? It's such a collaborative thing, and you were just talking about the actors and the director. Did it take some getting used to to go from this thing that was all yours, was in your head, to wait a minute? Now De Niro's taking this and doing this, and Groden's doing this, and Marty you know, Brest is doing this. I, you know, I mean, they look, look again, they really did follow the script very closely because it was a highly structured script. And like you say, every line of dialogue, it was a pretty lean and mean screenplay. A lot of stuff happens in it, you know, it's got a lot of moving parts, so you couldn't go too far off the screenplay, you know, um, no, but I did not have those feelings. You know, I, I, to be honest with you, I've always, uh, was very, very practical about, I was very practical about, hold on, they're talking over here. What is it? <laughs> I was going to say, if you know, it's kind of a John Ashton thing, like, that Which? you change the Oh, that's a good story. My wife reminded me of a great story. But let me refill this damn glass here. Yeah, let's get let's get you on here. What? So what, you're going to stick with the straight bourbon, or you're going to try Yeah, any? yeah, yeah. Why, yeah, don't make drinks, God damn it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I do, George, I do want you to try that 10-year rye, because... You all do it. 
For no yeah, it's, one else. It's because here's the thing. I, I don't know how you feel about rye whiskey. Rye whiskey tends to be spicier. Okay, tends to have a little bit of spicier quality to it. What I why I love Michter's rye is they they have enough. So rye is the rye is the starch. Rye is the grain. Right. But then and that makes up the the majority of that mash bill. But they also put enough malted barley and corn in the mash bill on their ten year rye so that you get that balance that sweetness you get a little bit of that sweetness there that comes in to to counteract the spice and i think they hit it i think that the dan mckee is the is the master distiller there i think he nailed it i think he has it right in the sweet spot where yeah, it's really it, i'm not just saying this it's really terrific yeah, i'm glad I mean, you enjoy I'm, it i'm a believer i'm a believer in this now um you're so you were saying about the oh, your story your wife was saying that you, that you wanted to tell. What oh, but you, you know, in terms of, no, I had very, to finish the other thought, I had very, uh, look, I was happy. Look, you got to understand something. I was happy that my fucking movie was getting made, you know? I mean, I, I was just, you oh my know. God. Hold, hold on once. <laughs> this is what? great. What? That's amazing. What? Uh, nothing. I, uh, I can use the Zoom. <laughs> I've been, uh, you know, it's all good. What? Tell me. Fucking Christ. We have to start over? I didn't hit record. <laughs> I have record going on this, on the Zoom. I have this all on the Zoom. We can use this. But I'll, now I'm going to hit record on this. Ah, that's funny. I got it on the Zoom. I got it on here. What we just talked about, we can do. <laughs> My wife is telling me something. What, what are you saying? You're so funny. Yeah, I'll tell you a story about that. I mean, again, look, I, I don't. Am I am I being recorded right yeah, now? Yeah, and so yeah. Let me do this. Listen, my wife. Look, I'm gonna have a cigarette. Okay, sure, which yeah, yeah. Never do, but I figure you talked about the you. It's your damn fault. You talked about the romance of Humphrey Bogart and whiskey at the bar, and those guys conquered the Wild West, and they all had a cigarette in their mouth. So damn it, I can have one cigarette. But uh, anyway, let's go. Um, okay, sure. I don't know where she went. To get a cigarette. I, did she? Uh, hey, uh, Dan. Dan, I hope you're enjoying this. I'm having a great Dan, time. I'll, I'll, I'm, a million, I'm, I'll give you a million great stories. I'm, uh, I'm a little bit pissed at myself that I didn't hit record on my regular recorder, but that's okay. I it's fucked up and did not, and now we're recorder, doing this, but it's all right. Yeah. We're George, good. it's confusing because his recorder is called a Zoom also and then uh, the app is called a Zoom. Yeah, it's it's good. We'll, we'll get this. We'll piece it. I'll, I'll piece start it from the top. I don't care. No, no. I got it, man. I got I it. Think, yeah. but, but Dan, I'll the next thing I'm going to pour is that good rye. Pour the rye. That's that's you, the stuff. Yeah. I'll wait till you're. You know, you can get into it, George, and Ju- Julie can give you the cigarette. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm. Uh, what you know? The other thing I wanted. So we're talking. Oh yeah, talking about getting movies made and all that. I mean, I you know, yes, it's very instructive to hear you talk about it because you know it's. Uh, you came up in a different era, I think, uh, where probably more competitive then, right? There wasn't as many options for getting things made. I, I don't know the answer to that. My, my wife just came with the cigarettes. I don't know the answer to that. It's very interesting. Look, it, it, I'll tell you where it, it was. It was a much different universe then. What did my Humphrey Bogart think? There was a much different universe. Is it okay that I smoke on your show? I don't give a shit, man. Yeah, go for it. Your viewers care? Nope, nobody cares. I mean, they care. They just care about you. That's all. Yeah. You can do what you do, my friend. 
Would it make you feel better if I smoke pot while you're smoking the cigarette? Because sure, yeah. why not? All right, yeah, you on, can fuck the main line. I don't care. Hold on, let me uh, let me get my. Here we go. Hold on. Oh. Yeah. Okay. George wants to have a cigarette. I'm gonna have uh, this. Look at this thing, George. There we go. Look at that thing. Oh, that's uptown. I'm not screwing around. All right. All right, I'll outdo you. I'll do a big bag of coke. Okay, I'll start. <laughs> by the end, we're gonna be yeah, we're gonna be shooting with... heroin. By the end, yeah, right. I know. <laughs> anyway, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not used to such quality. <laughs> this is a uh, professional show here. Yeah, you know, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I feel very loose. When I had Soderbergh on, <coughs> when I had Soderbergh I saw, on, we did. That was a good show. I saw that. We did ether. No, I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> We were fucking huffing glue. So, where was I? I? This is this no, is where the show goes off the rails. Go, no, but what is it when you go in the uh, you go in that like fucking hut with a bunch of paint? Va- what, oh, hey, hey, it's Robert De Niro. Oh. Hold on a second. Is it? Hey, I'm, I'm doing an interview on. I'm, I'm doing an interview. I got to call you back. Hey, how are you? That darn Robert De Niro. He keeps calling me. No, I'm kidding. All right, okay, Richie. I'll call you later. All right, bye. Sorry. Do you right, actually do you actually speak to De Niro? I mean, I know he just, I just did your new movie. Him. I just directed him in a movie. Yeah, I talked to him quite a bit. Yeah. What? So what, let's talk about this new movie that you got coming out. An amazing cast you got in this thing. Yeah. Comeback yeah. trail. The comeback trail. I'll tell you the story of the comeback trail. I'm glad you smoked that pot because pot is sort of how this whole movie started. Okay. It's, they should all start this way. All right. I was 18 years old. It was a cold winter night. I was 18 years old and, and I skipped school. And a bunch of my buddies said, let's go to this comic convention in New York City. I lived in Portchester, New York. So it's like a 45 minute train ride. So in lieu of going to class, we went to the city and we went to this comic book convention. And I was not that into comic books, but these guys were like obsessed with all this shit, you know. And when I was there, they were running a uh, in, in a room. They were running a unfinished movie called The Comeback Trail with uh, Buster Crab, Chuck McCann, and Professor Irwin Corey. Do you remember Professor Irwin Corey? No. Professor Irwin Corey was like a double talker, like you know the hurricane and the blizzard, which in itself is a combination of both. You know. So anyway, uh, so. And I can say this freely, and I've said it to the I've said it to the people that made the movie. It, it was without a doubt the worst movie I'd ever seen. It was fucking <laughs> beyond horrible. Plus, I was stoned, so I was like the idiot in the back laughing his ass off. So they, they thought they had a hit, but I was laughing at how horrible it really was. But what it had a great idea at the center of it, and I was as far away from making movies as you can imagine. I was like you know a kid in high school. But I said to myself, if I ever get a chance, I want to take this idea and remake this movie. So then my career years later starts to get going. You know, I, you know, Midnight Run gets made, various movies get made. And I spent years trying to track down the rights of the comeback trail. But it was a movie that was never really released. So it's very hard to get the rights to it. And a lot of false starts and meetings with people who claim they had the rights and they didn't have the rights. So about the time I gave up, uh, uh, Phil Rosen, it's a Phil Rosenthal. Phil, Tom's Phil. 
Yeah, Tom Phil. Phil. Yeah. yeah, Phil Rosenthal. Phil's been on the show more than anybody else, actually, on right. this show. Yeah. So Phil wants to do a screening of Midnight Run. He's got this little theater thing, like on Sunday nights, he invites a bunch of industry people and they all come in. So I meet this woman there and she comes up to me, sweet lady. She, her name is Joy. And she comes up to me and she says, I just want you to know that this was my husband's favorite, your movie, Midnight Run. It was his favorite movie. I said, oh, that's really sweet. Thank you. And I said, what's your name? And she said, Joy Hurwitz. And I said, are you any relation to Harry Hurwitz? And she said, that was my husband. Get out And I said, I swear. Wow, to that's amazing. God, I swear to God. And I, and, uh, I said, he, he did the comeback trail. And she goes, how do you know the comeback trail? That movie was never released. I says, I've been trying to find the rights to this movie for like decades. And she says, well, I own them. I got everything in the estate when he passed. So I made a deal with her. And then about 10 years later, we made the movie. But that was about, what, 10 years ago. Yeah, I'd say. Incredible. Uh, Now, it's supposed to come out in the fall. Do you have any idea what the contingency plan is if there are no movies? They're seeing 3,000 theaters uh, on November 13th. But because of COVID, who knows? Who knows? Would you be okay with it if it just went direct to streaming or – no, I mean, it's a it's a giant looking movie. You know, it's a big kind of a, the story behind it is uh, how the movie got made is another crazy thing. But uh, uh, it's a big you know, the, the story is, is Robert De Niro. It takes place in the 1970s and Robert De Niro plays the most horrible bottom bottom feeding uh, grindhouse movie producer that like, you know, he, Guys like Herschel Gordon Lewis, he's like one of those guys. And he makes the worst movies on earth. Uh, and he cannot make a hit. It's a little bit like the producers. And he comes up with this scheme that in, in lieu of making a movie, what he could do is heavily insure his star and kill him in a stunt. And if he could kill him in the first day of principal photography, they'll make a big killing financially. Then they never have to finish the movie. So they go to the old folks' home and they find Tommy Lee Jones, who was like, John Wayne or, or Randolph Scott at one point, but he's retired and he's an old, angry, fucked up drunk, you know? So they <laughs> cast him in the great. movie and he's suicidal. When they go into the room, he's got a gun in his mouth. So they go, Oh, he's fucking perfect. You know? So they, they intend on killing him before lunch, but they can't fucking kill him. He starts surviving stunt after stunt after stunt. The movie is really, really funny. Oh, I can't wait, man. I can't wait to say, yeah. well, maybe Phil will do a screening. Tom, will you invite me? Thanks. Tell Phil. Okay. Sure. Yeah, let's do a screening. I've got a, I've got a Blu-ray, but we could do that. Then everybody wears masks. Everybody's laughing. There we go. Will you? How have you been? How have you been handling this, George? How have you been handling the the COVID, the quarantine? I don't go anywhere. This is perfect. This is, you know, I'd really like to see it, but there's a pandemic. No, this is perfect for me. I don't have to see anybody, talk to anybody. No, I love being here all by myself. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way. I got to be honest. Really? Yeah. I mean, no, I, I got a nice place and I, you know, I go for walks. Julie's an exercise nut. She takes me on the, these Batan death marches, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then uh, we swim a little bit and then I go back and I write some more. So no, it's great. I want to switch gears a little. Well, actually, no. Before we get off the movies, let's talk about some of the other stuff you've done but how here. How that movie got made? I got to tell oh, you. Oh yeah, you're going. Hey, oh, how that movie got made is a fucking miracle. Okay, because I gave that script to everybody, you know, 
And everyone read it, and all the studios read it. They go, yeah, it's funny, but it's a movie about Hollywood. It's a movie about making a movie. You know, they're making a Western in the movie, and your protagonist is an asshole. And I'm like, yeah, so it's a comedy, you know? Thank God, you know, I called Bob up. I said, Bob, will you do me a favor? Just read this script. He read it. He goes, this is the funniest thing I've read in a long time. Bob said, I'll do it. Suddenly, boom, it's a go movie, you know? Yeah, so. De Niro's doing it, right? You're, it's it's happening. Yeah. Now, you've yeah. done uh, a couple other movies that people may have heard of. Uh, let's see, there was <laughs> Bad Boys. I get. Would that have been... So after Midnight Run, you, you do a few sequels. You do Trapped in Paradise. Then you do Bad Boys, right? You wrote it. Well, no, I wrote Bad Boys before Midnight Run. That's the interesting thing. I, I did... Uh, when I first came out here, I wrote Wise Guys which was Danny DeVito and Joe Piscopo, the Brian De Palma movie. Then I wrote, then I wrote bad boys, which I sold to Paramount. Then I wrote midnight run and it just sat there forever. Bad boys sat at Paramount forever. Then I wanted to turn around to Sony. And, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. There you go. Oh, cause, they, cause the sound went out for a second. Okay. And, uh, that sat there for about 10 years. So I, I probably wrote it in 85 and it got, it didn't get made until 95. And then you've, what was the first film that you directed? I guess it would have been 29th Street, right? 29th Street, I met this guy on the set of Midnight Run, and he, uh, he said to me, he was one of the actors, he said, uh, I've got a story for you. And he tells me the story to 29th Street. It was a pretty remarkable tale. And I didn't care if it was true or not, whether it was bullshitting or not. It was a great story. And uh, I wrote that right after Midnight Run, and then Joe Roth had a deal where he wanted to give three writers a, a shot at directing. And it was me, Dale Launer, and I think, uh, I think Nora Ephron was the, yeah. Uh, and he gave us all a shot in 29th Street. And you're the only one that made it. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Dale wrote a few good movies. Yeah. What was that other person? Nora what? No. Nora Ephron. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, how's the whiskey, by the way? It's fucking great. Uh, yeah, uh, let me let me try this new stuff. You're gonna you're gonna try the Michter's ten year rye. I'm not only gonna try the Michter's. I'm gonna have one more cigarette. Can I have one more cigarette? Mm. I am completely evolving into George at thirty. What That's a fucking okay. show this is. Yeah, right. We can we'll have you on more often, George. Yeah, really good. I was <laughs> I was off a cigarette for like thirty years. <laughs> It will probably enhance somehow or change the the flavor of the whiskey. I'm curious what that does to it. What the cigarettes? Yeah, oh, I always what? well, I you know, hey, I, it tastes very nicotiny and very uh, tarry. I've okay. often talked about how that probably changed the flavor profile of a lot of wines, a lot of spirits, because you have to think back in the day, everybody that was making wine and spirits was smoking. All of the all of the vin, uh, the the winemakers, all of the master distillers, the blenders, they all smoke. That's the ten year rye you trying right there. Yeah, dude, that is great. It's good stuff, man. I'm I'm a huge fan. Wow. Dude, we'll have to keep we'll have to keep you in Michter's from now from here on out, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get a uh, a Michter's credit card. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you, you do, do you enjoy one or the other more writing, directing, or just. That's an interesting, that's a very interesting question in a funny way. Neither. 
you know, I, I, my wife is opening the windows because I'm smoking at the whole house. No, honey, be in the be in the show. Um, do I like writing or directing more? Okay, here's the answer. I do enjoy writing, although writing a lot of times to me is, you know, Julie will always say to me, Julie's my wife. We've been together forever. She'll say to me, where are you right now? What are you thinking about? And I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm hearing voices in my head when I'm writing. And writing is like a puzzle, and you're always kind of stuck on something, hung up on something, hung up on a plot line, you know. And so that part of it's not fun that you're not present a lot of times with people. If you're in the middle of writing something and I'm, I take my work with me everywhere I go. You know, if I'm with people, I listen to them. Hey, maybe I could use that. Yeah. I'm a very, you know, but directing, I don't really, I've directed a lot of movies. I can't wait to direct my next film. Okay. But if you ask me, do I really like it? The pressure is unbelievable. There are moments of magic while you're doing it, you know? But my thought is always like, oh, God, that scene was great. I hope this all fucking cuts together. I hope this all works the way I want it to work, you know? And uh, to answer your question, I love having done it. Does that make sense? When it's all finished and you look at it all done with all, you know, because it's a long process. If you're lucky, it's a year, okay? So a year, you're a different person at the end of that year, you know? So when you see it all, whoever you were when you started it, you're a different person by the time you finish it. And then you 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 see it all done with the music and the sound and exactly, and it, 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 in some strange way, you love it and you've lost interest in it too. You know, it's like you have to be your very sharpest at the end. You know, part of his part of you is like, I don't want to see this fucking thing again as long as I live. I just don't care. You know, I just want to get it done. But that's where you really got to be sharp because you got to really make sure whatever energy you had at the beginning, you also have at the end. So, um, I mean, look, it's not fun. Look, look, again, it's all relative, you know there are people who have real jobs who, if they listen to this, go, Oh, fuck you. You know sure. what I, and I, I used to have real jobs. I used to drive delivery trucks. It's, it's not fun sometimes when you're out in the street at four o'clock in the morning and you're trying to create rain and you're, you've been up 20 straight hours and you're like, you're bleary eyed and you can't think straight. You know, that part of it isn't fun, but you um, when it's all finished and it works and you hear people laugh, you know, cause mostly what I do is comedies when you hear people laugh or if someone goes, Oh no, you know, at, at some moment and you go, okay, it's working. You know? So I like having done it, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And I, you know, I equate it in some ways to professional athletes. You think about the sheer amount of training and effort that goes into being an athlete and why do they do it? It's for that one moment when you, you know, you catch a you catch a touchdown, and you get the, the 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 whole stadium erupts, and it's like the tens of thousands of hours that I have been running and training and lifting weights and doing. I'm doing it all for that two seconds that I'm going to catch that touchdown. That makes perfect sense. And yeah. I've I've said that I just had a conversation with my girlfriend recently, and I and she said, you know, what do you the favorite part about writing, like what do you enjoy most if you're working on a book? And I said, 
not much. I said, I, 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 I like being done. I, I, I like being done and looking back at, you know, I used to work with Hunter S Thompson and Hunter had a great quote that he said, you know, writing is like sex. It's only fun for amateurs. There's pressure, but you're on a book deadline. You're writing a movie. There's a lot of pressure and there's lots of pressure and it doesn't always lend itself to, uh, to being, you know, to thinking about the fond memories of doing it. No, and there's never enough time. There's never enough time. That's the problem with me. It's like, you know, uh, with Comeback Trail, we shot it very quickly, you know, and it's a big movie with a lot of action and stunts and stuff, and there's just never enough time. And then suddenly we got rained out a lot. We shot in Albuquerque, and then we shot on some Indian reservations, and, you know, we're out in the desert and you're just about ready to go on a fucking storm cloud rolls in. You got to stop for three hours. It's raining. Everybody runs off to the trailer, you know, and then you got to try to get all ready again in your head. Like when the rain clears, you got to run back, sweep out the, the puddles, try to make it look like it, you know, the, you didn't just go through a monsoon, you know, and then you got to try to get that moment again. That's going to go by in 10 seconds. And, uh, it's a it's a crazy process. I mean, look, I, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I look. In the, I'm always astonished that when a movie's finished, that it's as good as it is. You know, when you when it because it's such a it's like trying to control a tractor trailer with no brakes going down a hill. You know, and uh, when you finally get to a safe place, you're like. What just happened back there, you know? Well, have you ever had the feeling with a movie that you've been involved with where you went the opposite, where it's like, yeah, this this was like being in a tractor trailer without the brakes in it, and it actually turned out that way? Yeah, I mean, a few of them. You know, it, it, it's no matter how good your intentions are going into them, you know, that's always like my issue with film critics is, is like, you know, they, they get into these attacks on your on a particular film you know, but I think you got to judge an artist by their entire body of work, you know, because some Absolutely. of them, work and, some mean, of them yeah. work and some of them just don't. And sometimes they don't work for any fault of your own. It's just the weather got you, something went wrong in production. And, you know, it's got nothing to do with the director at, at times, you know. And I, I fully agree with you on the body of work. I mean, if you think about it, the Rolling Stones have sucked for twice as long as they were amazing. Right. But you still got to go. And I'm, right. I'm, I'm even including like undercover in the good pile. Okay. You know, for the early eighties, I said, but, but when you judge the Rolling Stones, you're not going to judge them by the out, you know, by maybe the albums they made the last 15 years, you're going to judge them by the entire body of the work. And when you add that all up, they're one of the greatest bands that ever played. So you might have a miss, you might have a couple of misses, but you've had way more hits. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, doing something wrong, making a big mistake, let's say, it's like makes you better on the next one because you go like, all right, I'm not going to do that again, you know, but it's- That's how I feel about sex. I'm always like, yeah, all right, Jesus. I made a big mistake there. <laughs> you know, it's Halfway like judging, through. It'd be like judging a child who's trying to learn how to walk and then the kid falls down and you go, ah, oh, the kid's an idiot. No, but- Part of falling down is learning how to, that's the process of learning how to walk. So some movies are going to work great and some movies are going to fall and then you pick yourself back up and then you make another good one, you know? Um, So, uh, I mean, that's kind of how I look at directing. 
What about painting? I, Painting's another huge passion of yours and your and your your work is amazing. I went on, I'm actually looking at, at some of it right now and you do a lot of uh you're a passionate landscape painter, correct? Yeah. Yeah, correct. And what what drew you to landscapes? I started out as a painter. I mean, before I did movies, I started out as a painter. I, I wanted to be like a bohemian artist, landscape painter. Then I got the movie bug and I started going towards movies. Look, the thing about painting that is wonderful is that you can experiment all you want and nobody sees your misses. They're not public. You know, you throw the canvas in the garage, you know, if you're missing, but part of getting better is to miss it's to overextend yourself. It's to try shit that that's beyond you, you know, and then you miss and nobody sees that. And then you do, you keep trying it and then suddenly you get it and people go, Oh, you're so wonderful. And you go, yeah, but I did 200 canvases that really sucked, you know, before I got to this moment, you know, that is good. But as, as filmmakers, all of it's public. You know, you make a movie and you miss and everybody, ah, you know, you suck. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that part of it is very, very difficult. Do you have a uh, when you think down the line with your career, do you see it? being you're going to continue to do all these different things with the painting, directing, writing, all this, or do you, do you have a vision for, you know, the end of your career? You know, I mean, look, I think that there's a few movies I really desperately want to make, you know, there's a few things I really truly want to do. Um, but I don't see myself making movies forever. I, I could see myself throwing, myself completely into painting and uh because just because of the hours and the grind you know and 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 there's there's paintings i have in my head that i really have to get to my glass is being refilled do you think you see do you think you see paintings the way you see movies screenplays you get an idea in your head and it's is are they fully formed ideas a lot of times or is it just a, a kernel the thing about painting is, you know, as a painter, you're the writer, the director, the editor, you're everything, the, you know, the composer, you're absolutely everything. It's just you and the canvas. And the other thing that I like about painting is you get to move at the speed of thought, hmm. you know, you know, whereas as a screenwriter, you write something, then you got to go out and try to get the money to direct it. Then you make it, then you have to sort of retell the story in the cutting room and then that's finished, and then you have to add music to it and to try to support your idea, and then you do the mix and everything, and, and it's it's a long process. But painting, you go, ooh, I just want to put a, a highlight there, and ooh, that worked, or ooh, that didn't work. I could I can fix it immediately, you know? But, you know, with if I have an idea on a movie, i got to call 23 people up. i got to call the editor. Hey, let's recut that scene. i got to talk to the composer. i got to talk to all these folks, you know, it's a much different process. When you say you've got a bunch of ideas for, for films, is there anything now that you're working on that it's either percolating or you're already actively working on it? I, I've got a lot of scripts. There's a couple of scripts I really want to make. I, I have, uh, you talk about like my dream project. Yes. Before I die, before I shed this mortal, mortal coil, uh, I read a book when I was a kid called The Day of the Triffids. 
which was one of the great science fiction books of all time. They made they, the BBC made a version of it, and the uh, they made a kind of a cheesy movie of it in 1963. But it's one of the great, I think, sci-fi stories of all time that has not been told properly. I so want to make that movie before I before I leave this earth. I, I I've wanted to make it since I was a, a kid. I such a passion for it. It's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie. By the way, my neighbors are having a party now, so we're going to be picking that up in the background. Awesome. You're your neighbors. Cheers. Raising a little more mictors here. Um, Tom, I don't know if we can talk about this, but Tom mentioned the Barney and Betty Hill thing. Is that something you want to talk about? Yeah, that's a movie. That's one of the next things I'm going to do. That was a project I've always wanted to do, which is – they were a uh, Betty and Barney Hill were a mixed race couple. Barney was black and Betty was white. And in 1961, they lost several hours of time, and they went to see a psychiatrist to uh, figure out what happened during that time. And it was the and during hypnosis, they both ex- came up with a story, and they both came up with the same exact story, down to the finest detail that they had been abducted by aliens. And it was the first alien abduction case in the United States. I've already finished the script and we're very close to mounting that and going. And so it was based on a book, uh, The Interrupted yeah, Journey? The Interrupted Journey, yeah, which is, was a bestseller. It's a terrific book. I love the book. I read the book. You know, when I was a kid, they uh, my parents had a subscription to Life magazine. And I picked up the magazine and on the cover was Betty and Barney Hill on a flying saucer. And I read it. I was like probably nine, 10 years old. It scared the shit out of me that these aliens could pluck you up and run these experiments on you and then drop you off and tell you that you, uh, you're not supposed to remember it, but they knew something was wrong. You know, I just, what it scared me since I was a kid. So anyway, I wrote the script with Josh Poster, who was my writing partner. We wrote that together. We wrote Comeback Trail together also. And uh, we're, we're, we're moving forward on that right now. So you get, you're, not, you're keeping busy. I can't help it, man. I can't sit still. I'm no good when I'm sitting still. I start drinking and smoking. Well... When you're feeling like you need to sit still again, just give me a call and we'll do another one. We'll do like the, uh, we'll do the tequila episode or the rum episode. Sure, let's do that. Let's do that. Absolutely. Are we done? We can talk for a couple more minutes. Sure. I'm sure, gonna... I'll talk about anything you want. Uh, what else? What else you got? Well, I, I was kind of thinking about, uh, I wanted to, maybe I'll fold this back in. One of the things I wanted to touch on when the guy was in that Esquire piece, he was talking about uh, with Midnight Run they didn't want De Niro. They didn't think De Niro could pull off, was a big enough draw for a comedy. That, that stuff I don't remember, to be honest with you. I, 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 all I can tell you is I remember, I remember it was a Friday afternoon. I mean, I could tell you stories like this. And then Julie reminded me of a very, uh, might be what might be interesting. I don't know. But I remember when I got a call and they said, Robert De Niro is going to be in Midnight Run. I get, and I was like, Robert De Niro, he'd never done a comedy, you know? But Midnight Run wasn't a straight-ahead comedy. It was a story to me that happened to be very funny. There's a lot of humor throughout it. Well, there's a, but there's also moments in that film. I mean, we, you know, my I got a big lump in my throat. There's a scene where he goes, they go back to visit. He hadn't seen his estranged wife and his child in nine years, and he he needs to go there and and borrow money. And uh, right. they, 
the the scene when the daughter comes out, you know, and goes outside to give him her money is devastating. You know, it's it's so sad. I I I, I totally got a lump in my throat while I was watching it. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. You know, again, this is, you know, in, 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 you know, I was, I was a young guy when I wrote that script, you know, it's like, uh, a lot of those things, they just sort of came to me. I didn't realize how much they resonate. You know, when you're 30 years old and you're writing these things, it's different than when you're 60 looking, you know, you think about a man that hadn't seen his daughter in nine years, you know, and then a guy that, you know, the tragedy of, uh, of all of that, you know, to me, they were more like ideas, you know, and I put them into the script, you know, and obviously they worked, but, uh, you know, I know what the point is. It's sort of like whatever I was thinking, they were more instinctual than they were. Had you gone, had you gone through anything like that? Had you had that kind of, Oh no, I hadn't. I was just thinking, you know, to me, look, to me as a, look, as a storyteller, I always think to myself, the stories that let, in terms of Midnight Run, because that's the one that people seem to know, right? It's a story of a journey, and you're going to be a different person at the end than you are at the beginning. So, And part of that story for me was he was going to heal his past. And in order to move on, you've got to heal the past. You've got to get through these things. Ignoring your wife, your ex-wife, ignoring your daughter, not dealing with these things, you never heal. So in a funny way, the whole the whole trip was a purge. You know, he he put a lot of things to bed in his head that he wouldn't have done otherwise. You know, and that's almost like fate drove him to that to that trip. You know, when there's that moment in the end when he says, I've been after 10 years, I finally get to say. You're under arrest. You're under arrest, yeah, because he'd forgotten what it was like to be a cop. You know, so like those things look, look like a lot of the things that I write, I think to myself, it has to work as a drama before it works as a comedy. You know, because comedy is just the point of view that you choose to take. Midnight Run, you could take every joke out and it still would work as a story. You know, I'm, I just see a lot of humor in human, in human behavior and human exchanges so I tend to write things humorous, you know, but uh, so when De Niro said he wanted to do the film, you know, I was like, I couldn't believe it, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, you know, he was taxi driver. He was all of those. The Godfather. He was the Godfather. He was all these very serious characters. I mean, I was ecstatic. I'm like, wow, fucking Robert. And had you, yeah. had you had any contact? Had you met him before anything? Like, not, no, no, nothing. I met him. I met him on Midnight Run. Okay. I met him. I met him in the auditions. He didn't have to audition. No, he didn't have to audition. He had the part, but everybody in town came in to audition for the Duke. And, and by the way, that was a, a gutsy casting call because Groden was certainly wasn't a, a, at that point, an A-list guy, right? No, I have to tell you, the smartest thing that Marty did was that he followed his instincts. He did not make one move. He was so, and it was a a lesson for me. He didn't make any move in that movie that it'll be better commercially if I do this. He was like, fuck that. I'm making this movie. I'm going to be true to the story. When did, when, when Grodin came in to the, to the uh, uh, audition and sat next to Bob, before they talked, you knew it, you know, and they did the scene. Why are you unpopular with the Chicago police department? 
you know? And the more bottled up Bob got, we're sort of going full circle, the more Charles laid back and you could just see, okay, that's it. And now you can argue, make a strong argument. I think that it, it's certainly top three buddy pairings in, in, in film. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something. It, it, to me, it was a lesson. Okay. That depends on how you look at this stuff. Like, do you want a career or do you want to do really good work? Cause the two things in my mind have nothing to do with each other. Okay. Cause you ask us, do I want a career? Yeah. You can keep making these things that make money and that's kind of a formula, but I have, I have to tell you something. The reason midnight run midnight run may have been a bigger hit with another actor, but midnight run has lasted because Marty was true to the piece. And when you look at it today, you don't think of those things. So-and-so wasn't quite a star and -and so-and-so wasn't this and blah, 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 blah. The fucking thing works. And that to me was a real lesson. It's like, do I want to make lots of money? You know, there's nothing wrong with lots of money. I mean, or do you want to do something great that's going to last? And that to me was the lesson. And you've, and you've managed to make things that are going to last that also made a lot of money. Man, I hope so. You know, I mean, I hope that they last. You know, like when I read reviews sometimes of my films, I think to myself, I'm not interested in what people are saying today. I'm interested when people say 50 years from now when I'm gone, because that's what really counts. Because you got to remember all those B movies, those Warner Brothers pictures, they were not liked, you know, by critics. Now we see them for what they are because we don't have that garbage in our heads. We just see. Wow, that's a terrific story. That's a well-acted story. These actors are wonderful. But we don't see them at that moment that they're movie stars and this, that, and this. So anyway, that's that was the lesson I learned on that. Being a painter, being a writer, filmmaker, I wonder when you say how long it's going to last. Because the thing I have said to friends of mine about, especially film, television, is the way people consume thing, I think, things a hundred years from now may be and so visceral where you know, like you're in it's implanted in you or whatever i don't know that that's going to last or be as widely consumed or appreciated as a painting and i say that because painting has lasted so long now <laughs> it's been around it's been around for so long since they were scrawling on the wall cavemen were scrawling on the walls and it's an art form that has persisted through all of the changes that have gone on. And I wonder, and, and my feeling would be, and, I, and, and, and I'm not saying that I don't hope that 200 years from now people are going, mad midnight run. But I, I would feel more confident in saying 200 years from now, your paintings are still going to be hanging somewhere on whatever approximates a wall 200 years from now. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I don't know. That, look, I mean, look. The reason I think paintings resonate a lot of times is because there's no real money in painting. So if you're going to paint for, if you're going to paint, you tend to tell the truth. You know, movies cost a tremendous amount of money to make. And so you have to have a lot of commercial. Nobody's standing over you when you're painting either going, Hey, you need to get, you need to get something up here because red's not getting in the color. Red's not getting enough billing on here. And we red's our star. Or, 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 you know, we, we, we took a vote 
uh, we took a vote. We, we, we petitioned a thousand people and people said that yellow is not a color that people like as much as orange. <laughs> you know, so you don't have those ridiculous thoughts going through your head, you know? So if you look in the end, as highfalutin as this may sound, but the truth of it is if you're really honest, if you're doing honest work, that's going to resonate over time, you know, because look, let's, we see movies that were hits 20, 30 years ago. We look at them now, they look fucking ridiculous to us. You know, you know, we go, that is so of that moment. That is so silly. That is so out of that very, you know, moment in time. And it was an enormous hit and it caught the zeitgeist of that moment. But in retrospect, you look at it, you go, how the fuck did people like this movie? You know, but the great ones were the ones that were honest and the people that made them. And, and look at some of these Cassavetes movies. Did you see, have you seen the movie Husbands? I have not, no. Oh, fuck, dude. That movie, that movie is so honest, you know, and, and that it still may, it'll make sense 100 years from now. You know, it, it's like these movies, they will make sense forever. You know, Jaws is a movie that I can. Jaws is a great movie. I would say Jaws is the ultimate popcorn movie. I think in many ways. It's my favorite Spielberg movie, I think, you know, I mean, I'll tell you that there's an I was watching Sugarland Express this morning. Sure. Movie. Hey, another phone call. That movie is, that, is so. Is that crazy. De Niro again? Calling on the other one. It is. He's really trying Charles, to get through to you. That was Charles Grodin. Anyway, um, Spielberg. So we're talking about Jaws. I mean, I, I Jaws is a movie that I can. Jaws is as good as it gets. You man. can put I, it on and go. I don't care where you're from, where, where, you know, how old you are. The movie has something for everyone. I remember watching it as I was a, a kid. Actually, this actually happened, George. My mom took me to see Jaws on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Just to give you an idea how fucked up my childhood was, I was like seven years old. My mom took me to see Jaws at a movie theater on the boardwalk, and the first thing I saw when I walked out of the movie, we were on the boardwalk, I walk out the movie theater, there's the ocean. There's the Atlantic Ocean where this carnage just happened, and I was looking at her going, (laughs) at seven, what, what did you just do to me? I, I never want to go in the water again. You mentioned Jaws. I, I watched, you know, although you know, from a directorial point of view, I watched that movie a lot when I was making a uh, comeback trail, which has nothing to do with Jaws. But the way Spielberg, he did a lot of really brilliant. Uh, there's a scene in Jaws where uh, Roy Scheider is there on that uh they're on that little ferry going across the water. Yep. It's done in one big master shot. As soon as they get on the boat, the car pulls in and Roy Scheider's there like in a, in a far shot. The camera's here. And then they walk into a medium shot. They're talking and the, the guys in the background are all moving. And then they reposition when they walk into a close-up and they go into a 50-50 and looking at each other. And the boat is, I mean, it's so well made. So a lot of what I did, I was watching that movie a lot. So when I did comeback trail, I was doing a lot of those big master shots where people would walk from the back to the middle ground to the foreground. I was doing a lot of that stuff. Do you ever, do you, are you able to look back at some of your past work and say, Oh, I know what I was watching then. I know what was influencing me then who I was reading at the time. You know, I've had stuff that I've written in the past where I've gone. Okay. So I was very clearly 
reading Tom Robbins at the time because here I am trying to ape Tom Robbins. Yeah. Yeah. I do think of those things, the people that influenced me at the time, you know, that you were aping them. I'll tell you the truth. I think if any director is being honest, if any artist is being honest, you fall hopelessly short on everything you do because whatever you got in your head is always better than what it plays in front of you. What I'm always interested in is I'm always pleasantly surprised if I see something that I made, it's by the time you're done with it, you hate it. Okay. Like I never want to see this fucking thing again, you know, because, it, but 10 years later you look at it and you go, wow, that actually kind of worked, you know, or, or I was onto something, you know, so it's, you're free of it, you know, and you can look at it. Clearly. Well, and you also, you're, you mentioned this numerous times earlier in the show and you say you're a different person when you start a movie versus the end, it's the same thing. Like I felt that way about my, my books where even in the process beyond being a different person from when I finished the book, you're also a different person consuming it. So the first two years after the book came out, my last book, American Wino, I would cringe at certain parts and I'd say, Oh, why, you know, why did I do that? You know, there's a, there's a big part of that book. The book's about my brother, drowned and it was my journey to try to heal myself i drove around the united states for four months ostensibly to become the leading expert on american wine because they make wine in every state but really it was to to try and come to grips with what had happened to my brother and so i never read this i like to read i'm gonna send it to you so i so i uh and but there was also I was also had gone to a break. I do love road pictures, you know. Oh, I'm gonna hey, I'll say hey, put that on the put that in the on the list on the pile. Um, but but there was also a thing that had gone on. I'd gone gone to a breakup, and then my ex had gotten with somebody else, and and that was tearing me up at the time that I wrote the book. Now some mm-hmm. of the funniest shit in the book goes. Her name in the book is Elizabeth, and his name is Jack. And I was so bitter, you know. There was even this line at the end when. I was talking about, you know, them and he's a struggling actor trying to, and I said, well, you know, I hope he gets his, his big break, uh, uh, preferably his fibia, you know, or, the, you know, and this kind of thing. So two years after that, I was upset that I had made that such a, made it as prominent as I did in the book. You know, I was like, I wish that, cause I didn't feel the same way anymore. I no longer had that, that heartbreak yeah. and that anger, but now that was how I felt then. Now, two more years later, I'd done a reading recently for somebody and I read a part of that and I went, no, that's really funny. Like, I'm glad that belongs in there. You know, I'm glad that it's there. I I totally get what you're saying, man. It's like, uh, but look, you're never going to see it the way a stranger sees it. You're never going to see it uh, because you know where it all comes from. You know what you were thinking and feeling at every moment that you wrote something down and part of it is you're purging, and part of it is you know you're you're doing whatever you need to do. But um, but a stranger sees it. It's very funny, you know. Like uh, sometimes I'll show a movie to somebody that I did, and I'm like, oh, I'd love to cut this fucking piece out. I hate this piece. And somebody will say to me, that's the best part of the of the film. That's the thing that and I'm like, really, you know. But so we don't really know in the end, you know, I think if you, you know, you're just, you're trying to be honest, you're trying to get all this stuff out and you're trying to do the best you can. And and that, that thing you touched on just now is when a stranger sees it and it may sound like a cliche to say this, but I'm, I'm 
sure that you feel the same way because I certainly do is the money and all that stuff's great, but it's those moments and really they're the individual moments. It's not even about like had a, a million people bought my book. It's those moments when just one individual interaction where someone would hit me up, either they'd write me an email or I'd see them in person. I'd see them at a signing and they'd say, you know, I lost my sister or I lost my brother too, way too young. And thank you. It's just that it's, uh, it's thank you. Thank you for doing that because it, it connected with me and that's it, man. If you can do that once in your life, if you can do that one time in your life, I swear to you, there's no better feeling than connecting with someone on that level where this thing that was nothing. And then it was a thought in your head and then it became a movie. It became a painting. It became a, a book. And then somebody else who you never met, who comes from a totally different walk of life, that thought that originally popped in your head has come full circle and been yeah. a, and it's a thought in their head now. Now it's a memory for them. It's a, it's a you know, and that's what makes it worth doing. I think. I I couldn't agree more. And on that note, we got to stop this show because this is going to be the longest episode I've ever had. Okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, no, this is a great thing, man. I'm, I might even split this up into two episodes, but. George Gallo, I love talking to you, man. I, I really could probably do hours and hours of this, and we should let's do it. We let's should do it. it again. We're going to do it well, again do soon it again. because there's okay. Let's do it. I'm serious. We basically talked about uh, uh, you know five percent of what you do, and uh, and I want to get into the other ninety five percent. So maybe if we do them five percent at a time, sure, we could also cover every spirit group there is. So George, right. thank you again, man, for for spending this time with us and and. Uh, and having some whiskey with me. Can we raise can we raise a toast here? Here we go. Hold Thank on. I, I have to refill my glass. That 10-year rye, man. That 10-year rye. I'll leave you with a thought, okay? How's that? I'll leave sure. you with a thought. Okay. It was a great, great, great teacher by the name of Robert Henry, who was an art teacher. And he said, don't live a life where you want to create great art. Great art. Live a life where great art becomes inevitable. Think about that. Cheers to that, my friend. Cheers. George Gallo, everybody.